I'm so delighted and honored to be sharing God's word with you this morning. We're going to be looking at Jesus' prayer in John 17, his magnificent prayer. And you may know this prayer as the high priestly one. And so if you have your Bibles, please open to John 17 or turn on your Bibles. And if you don't have one handy, we'll have the scripture for you on the screen. Well, needless to say, these last several months have been met with extraordinary challenges. And my sense is that for each of us, when we began this journey back in late February, early March, we thought we'd be back to some semblance of our normal routines by now. But as the weeks turn to months and we are still not back to quite the normal schedule safely, the optimism we once had has been replaced with fatigue and a level of weariness and perhaps even despair and discouragement. And if that describes you this morning, take heart. There is strength found in gathering to worship the Savior, isn't there? Recently, I heard the interview of a five-year-old daughter whose mother works in the hospital, and she said, my mommy is a nurse. She is a essential worker. And the reporter said, oh, really, what does that mean? And she said, it means we don't get to hug her and she sleeps in the basement. As if the ripple effects of COVID weren't enough, the stresses and strains of a global pandemic have exposed the fractures that lie just below our surface as a community. Racial violence and tension, domestic and child abuse, unemployment and homelessness are all on the rise. One high school valedictorian addressed his fellow students at his graduation, and he said, it's as if just when we were stepping out, the world is falling apart. It seems that there are more questions than answers. Years from now, hindsight will literally be 2020, but for now, we're in the middle of what feels like uncharted territory. If we've ever needed a compass... And the loving, unfailing words of a Savior who brings clarity out of confusion. It's now. So as we prepare to engage with God in his word, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your word and for this beautiful prayer. And we know that these words are written by the inspiration of your spirit. And certainly only you can use them to transform our hearts and minds to love you and serve you more fully. More than ever, we long to hear from you. Be with us this morning. Be gracious to our seeking as we engage with you and your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, someone's prayers are important as they often reveal the most essential things that occupy their heart and mind. In our prayer this morning, Jesus is about to embark on the most important journey of his life. What are the desires of his heart? What are the most essential things on his mind? As we'll see in this in this chapter, John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus makes three petitions of the father. First, he prays for himself. Second, he prays for his disciples. And finally, he prays for all who will believe their message. And of course, as we begin, it's helpful to have a little more context to the time that Jesus prayed this prayer. 
He's gathered with his disciples on the night before his death. And they've just celebrated the Passover meal. But the air is thick with tension. Jesus has just shared very sobering news that he will leave them. That one of them will betray him. And the other will deny him. He tells them that with every bit of news, there just seems to be more questions than answers. And then he says, in this world, there will be trouble. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And then our passage begins. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you. Before the world began. Now, this is the first time that Jesus has looked at his watch, so to speak, in John's gospel. To his mother in chapter 2, he says, my time has not yet come. To his disciples in chapter 7, he said, this is not yet the right time. But now in the presence of his disciples, as he's praying to his father, Jesus says, this is the moment of truth. He knows the purpose he was sent into the world. And what is his first request? He says, Father, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Now, throughout John's gospel, he often refers to the death and resurrection of Jesus by crucifixion as Jesus' glorification. But I have to ask you, what kind of glory is that? How can anyone think that a cruel and unjust crucifixion is glorious? As you know, crucifixion was the most shameful, humiliating, painful way to die. And the execution of perhaps a maniacal rabbi wouldn't have even made the evening news. How is this glorious? And the point is this. We immediately see in this opening verse a stark contrast between The gospel of a worldly king and the gospel of King Jesus. You know what a gospel is, right? It's a message of good news sent out to declare the glorious victory of a mighty king. A worldly king is all about using his power and authority to bring honor upon himself. He may build a monument just so everyone knows how great he is and his great accomplishments. Not so with King Jesus. Christ's glory and gospel is wrapped up in completing the work the Father has sent him to do. And in verse 3, we see what that work is. It's to bring eternal life to all the Father hath given him. Now, Caesar, the emperor of that day, of Jesus' day, would demand that you give your life for his glory. Instead, Jesus lays down his life for ours. Christ the victim, Christ the priest, you give your body for the feast, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He wins for us eternal life and becomes our great high priest. Each of us 
prone are prone to seek out glory for our own sake, to pursue our own praise and adoration for our accomplishments rather than to glorify God as Jesus does in his prayer. For Jesus in his glory through his death and resurrection, he rescues us from the power of sin and transforms our sinful need to seek glory for ourselves. And he restores our relationship, our hearts and minds most desperately need and want to know the only true God in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like me, you've grown up in church and you have you can't remember when you hadn't heard the message that Jesus was sent by the father to save us from our sins and to bring us into a relationship and that meant eternal life. When you hear that message these days. The temptation is for that to fall on deaf ears or numb ears because we've heard it. But I think in this gospel, what's so beautiful is that there is a Greek New Testament verb for our verb to know. And it can mean to know a body of knowledge or it can mean to know a growing relationship with a person. And so when Jesus says, I have come to bring eternal life so that you may know God. The only true God. He is saying that he is able to bring eternal life so that we may know him personally. And he's talking about an eternal life that is not just reserved for the end game. But a living in the present now in the kingdom now. It's the eternal life that Nicodemus, a Pharisee, an elite member of the Sanhedrin, hunted Jesus down in the night and said, Rabbi, teacher. I know you were sent from God. How can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds that it is from above. It is from the spirit and that it brings you into a life now, a kingdom life now. And it's about a full life living in the kingdom, breaking into our life now and in the present. The life Jesus promised us in John 10:10, I have come. That they may have life and have it abundantly. So eternal life is is not more of the same thing when you die. It begins now. Jesus has not come to give us more time to kill. But more life to live. And so as we move through his three petitions. He prays for himself, his disciples and those who will hear the message. Inherent is in this prayer Is it both an invitation and a challenge for us? In this first petition, what might be the challenge? Well, the invitation would certainly be to know God, to receive the gift of eternal life. But the challenge might be, in what places am I seeking my own glory? In what places am I claiming my eternal life ticket and still living by my own design? Jesus' prayer continues. After praying for himself, he now prays for his disciples. He says in verse 13, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. 
Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, this is a rich and action-packed prayer. As Jesus has been sent from the Father, he now sends his disciples into the world with the word to live out their faith. And this means that all of us who follow Jesus, those who've received this gift of eternal life, who now are privileged to know God, not a body of knowledge, but to know God as who he is and walk with him and grow with him in his word, we are called to live as missionaries where we live, work, and play. We are called to live as sent people. What does living sent look like? Well, as we interact with people in our lives, our family and friends, our neighbors and co-workers, those, those whom we'll meet, as we embody Christ's teaching and point to him, as a result, those around us will experience a little bit of what it's like to live in the kingdom right now. And that's because the light of Christ will shine through you. But immediately, Jesus presents a problem and a tension in this passage. What does he say? He says, the problem is, when we take the word into the world, when we take our light into the darkness and live by kingdom values, the world will take notice and some will hate you for it. So then what does Jesus say? Well, then then don't go. Don't do that. No. He says in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So despite the fact that the world is broken and that there is evil in the world, Jesus says, I want my followers in the world to live out their faith where they are. And then in 16, he he names the other issue. That each of us must struggle with on a daily basis. And that is that as Christians living in the world with the word, we have a tendency to fall in one of two camps. We might just be so in love with this world and get kind of cozy and over assimilate and thereby lose our influence. And the other side is that we pull ourselves away and isolate and separate ourselves from any cultural influence at all. But in response to these problems being hated by the world and the tension with living in the balance of being in the world and not of the world, Jesus gives us very good news. You see, in this passage, he does not send us out on mission in our own strength. God, in his infinite wisdom and extravagant love, sends the great high priest to intercede for us. In Luke's gospel, as Jesus prepares Simon for the mission he's about to take, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. 
Now, if Simon Peter, who was still living by his own glory, seeking his own praise and for his accomplishments, had failed his best friend in that way, he might not have ever come back. But see, he was on a mission. And when he remembered that he served a God on mission, and we know that the risen Jesus restores that relationship and sends him back in a mighty and powerful way. The foundation for this divine commission that Jesus gives us is found in verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, sanctified means not just holy. We hear that and we think holier than thou. And it means to be set apart. It means to be consecrated for a purpose. And Jesus says, I have sanctified myself for you. And now as you go, I sanctify you. And as Brian mentioned, there's the verse opens with that Jesus is praying this in the presence of his disciples. He's going to be with the father, but he wants them to hear that they will have the full measure of his joy. The Greek word sent is apostoli, means to send. And so there is a relationship between joy and being sent. We know this, those of us who are parents, when our child finds a purpose, a gift within a, a team or a class, and they have a purpose, they've been called to a task. Do you see they have joy? You see, that's us, Christian. How many people do we meet who have not yet received this divine commission and are using their gifts into the world, in the world with the word? And when we worship our blessings, we become too much like the world. We're cozy and we over assimilate and we wonder why we're discontent. I've never yet met a man or a woman who knows their calling from God, who is without hope. There is joy when we are divinely commissioned. Don Woodward writes in his book, the church is called to be a foretaste of God's kingdom, a place where people can get the taste of the future in the present. When the church is a foretaste, it demonstrates what life is like when God's people live under the rule and reign of God. But then Jesus prayer moves on. Verse 20. My prayer is not for for them alone, for I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. Christian. Did you ever know that Jesus prayed for you before you knew him? He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Before you knew Jesus, he prayed for you to strengthen you. And of course, we know this is another scripture for another sermon, but that the Holy Spirit gives you. And when you answer this call, when you walk with him and grow with him, not in a body of knowledge to know God, but in a deep personal way, 
And he peels off the layers of you and I that are still trying to glorify ourselves. He says, there's a woman I can use in my kingdom. Have you ever noticed that Ephesians 2, the whole book of Ephesians, is about the church? In Ephesians 2, we begin and we are objects of wrath. We are dead in our transgressions. And by the end of the chapter, Jesus says, you are my workmanship, created in Christ Jesus with good works that I've planned for you in advance. That is, it, that is the divine commission. And so the first point in this final petition is that Jesus prayed for you before you knew him. Now, I'm wondering about the disciples listening to that as they're thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm being sent into the world. The world's going to hate us. And he's already praying for those who are going to believe in my message. I think that gave them confidence. Jesus was confident that their message would produce the fruit. How about you? We are called to be a family on mission. And it's so clear to me in this chapter that as we participate in baptism, for instance, we are welcoming someone new to the family on mission. And we commit to be teaching our new friend not only what the gospel is, but how to apply it in our life. That's what we're doing. And so how does Jesus pray that this will happen in verse 21? He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be enough so that the world may believe that you sent me. Where does our unity exist? The passage answers those questions. Our unity rests on the finished work of Christ. Jesus said he's praying to be glorified because his work was getting ready to be finished. He had such a deep resolve that he talks as if it's already done. Our unity as a body of Christ rests in the finished work of Christ and our divine commission. And when the world sees how we love one another, John says this in John 13, this is how they'll know you belong to me. When they see the love you have for one another. What is the invitation and challenge for you in these last two petitions? Have you had time to reflect? What is your relationship with the world in the word? Sometimes it's hard to share the reason for the hope that you have, right? Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you, but when you take the word that has transformed your heart, that has ministered to you, that has perhaps given you strength, and you share that with someone else, a bit of the kingdom is right there. That's taking our light into the world. What does this passage teach us? It teaches us that before we think about concrete ways that God might have us be a blessing to our neighborhoods and beyond, 
we must remember that we have a great gift of community that we need to tend to, the one another passages, because that's going to be the witness that the world looks at as they consider this wonderful invitation from Jesus, right? There are so many illustrations of this, and I just have one to share with you. There was a man uh, about age 40, and he found himself without his family. He had lost his, his job and was addicted to alcohol. And he was at the end of his rope. And it was through what he calls a comedy of errors that he actually was invited to hear the gospel preached by a new friend. He didn't want to go, but he was at the end of his rope. And what he found was a loving community. And through years of rehabilitation, he now serves on Tuesday nights at the local rescue mission where he lives. It's not in Greenville. And one night he was on duty and he has a full-time job again. And the young man that he was caring for came in. And he came in again the next night and the next night. And over the next six months, this man came to know Jesus Christ. But before he did, the man said, I don't know Jesus, but I know this guy. Is Jesus anything like this guy? We must learn how to embody the teaching of Christ as a family. God is sending a family and mission out into the world, and he's gifted you in order to do that. As we close, Tim Keller, Presbyterian minister and author, writes, The real secret of fruitful and effective mission in the world is the quality of our community. Just as the single most formative experience in our lives is a membership in a nuclear family, so the main way we grow in grace and holiness is through deep involvement in the family of God. Dear friend, the church and each generation is called to carry the torch, to not only live the reconciling gospel message, but to embody and encourage others and equip others to do the same. And what, what gets in the way of our church doing that? What gets in the way of our church being a family on mission? Well, in spite of the sacrificial love of a Savior who brings eternal life so that we may know him, it might be when we continue to seek our own glory, either individually or corporately. Or how about when we forget that we're even on mission? We don't live as sent and we become too infatuated with the blessings of this world and we forget to worship the one who has given us these blessings. Or conversely, maybe we're out in the world and we're serving, but we don't take the word. And finally, when we do not make the ministry of his reconciliation visible for the world to see. You've been divinely commissioned. How will you respond? Will you pray with me? Oh, gracious God, we do thank you for your incredible word and this prayer that both invites and challenges, calls and sends us. 
Lord, we ask that you would help us reflect on our mission field where we live, work, and play. Bring to mind this week those that we might be a blessing. For those who love the mission but are not brave enough to bring the word out into the world, embolden us. For those of us who are feeling convicted that we've become too much like the world, help us, Lord Jesus. May we live to be a family on mission who loves and treasures the Savior. Take our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.